0: Welcome, welcome, everyone, back to uh, Coffee Break Bible Study. We should call it Bring Your Own Coffee Break to the Bible Study. Well, most of people have coffee here, so. All right, um, John, would you introduce your guests to us today? Sure, actually, Marty's. Well, I don't blame you for being Marty's guests. You know, I mean. <laughs> this is Joyce Lewick, and this is Susan Moro. Susan lives a couple houses, and Joyce lives farther away. So. Joyce lives near I live in the town our house. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, church, even if we don't go to that church. <laughs> okay. yeah, Good. Well, welcome. And you're welcome anytime. Our Psalm for the week, Congregation at Prayer, is number 68. And uh, we'll pray verses 1 through 10, responsively by half verse. The theme verse we'll use as an antiphon for the week, coming off of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved. If you did not pick up a... Mark text, there are a stack of them out there. I would put your name on it and then you can write, write notes on it and do as you please. Hello, Jacob. Some parishes have parish nurses. We have a parish physician. All right, let us pray. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exalt before God.
1: They shall be jubilant with joy.
0: Sing to God, sing praises to his name.
1: Let us a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him.
0: Father of the fatherless and protector of widows.
1: This God in his holy
0: God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity.
1: But the rebellious dwell in a harsh land.
0: O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earthquake, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai. Before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad.
1: You restored your inheritance as it languished.
0: Your flock found a dwelling in it
1: in your goodness, oh God, you for the glory,
0: glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit as it was in the beginning is now and will be forever amen for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast. Merciful God, we humbly implore you to cast the bright beams of your light upon your church, that we, being instructed by the doctrine of the blessed apostles, may walk in the light of your truth and finally attain to the light of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. From the Catechism, what is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second that we receive absolution, that is forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting but firmly believing that by our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. Let us pray. Merciful Father, You promise us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we come before you for confession and absolution, teach us to consider our place in life according to the Ten Commandments, work in us true contrition and repentance, give us a desire to live a new life, help us to know and confess our sin truthfully, As we receive our Savior's forgiveness, comfort our conscience, renew our lives, strengthen our faith in him, and restore to us the joy of your salvation. All this we ask for the sake of our dear Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and shed his blood for us upon the cross for the forgiveness of all our sins. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, always more ready to hear than we to pray, and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things that we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Christ our Lord. Bless Beth, Mark, Ashley, Wesley, Rebecca, Lance, Jack, Esther, and Sarah, celebrating baptismal birthdays this week that they may be preserved in Christ all the days of their life. We give thanks to you and pray your blessing upon Barry and Maureen, Mark and Pam, Tom and Nancy, celebrating wedding anniversaries. And for all of the sick among us, especially the mentally ill, for Amy, Connor, Travis, Cindy, Piera, Austin, Gabby, David, Andy, Drew and Kathy. Bring a restoration of health and strength according to your will and sustain those in the long and arduous battle with cancer, especially Michael, Reverend Dr. John Willey, Kathleen, Dennis, Kathy, and Beth. And we give thanks to you for cancer remission, for Peyton. Grant them all under the cross of affliction to cast their cares upon you, knowing that you care for them, and to rejoice in the gift of eternal salvation, which is far greater than all of the sufferings and struggles of this life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Almighty God, your son Jesus chose Bartholomew to be an apostle, to preach the blessed gospel. Grant that your church may love what he believed and preach what he taught. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Heavenly Father, as we begin our study of the gospel according to the evangelist, St. Mark, Grant us every grace and blessing to be faithful to your word, that Christ, being lifted up, may draw us ever closer to himself. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has taught us to pray. Our Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy thy name. name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 616, baptismal waters cover me.
1: Baptismal waters cover me as I approach on bended knee. My Father's mercy here I plead for grievous sins of thought and deed. I looked to Christ upon the tree, His body broken there for me. I lay before Him all my sin, My darkest secret from within lord may your wounded hand impart your healing to my broken heart your love alone can form in me a heart that serves you joyfully from your own mouth comes forth a word. Your shepherd speaks, but you are heard. Through him your hand now stretches out. Baptismal oh waters cover me. Christ wounded and has set me free. Held in my father's strong embrace, with joy I praise for His grace.
0: Alright, the Gospel according to St. Mark. What I'd like to do um, is give a bit of an introduction to uh, this gospel. It is the second gospel in the New Testament canon. Canon is the fancy word for the standard of what is authoritative. The entirety of the New Testament is referred to as the apostolic scriptures. There are 27 books in all, from Matthew through Revelation. They're called apostolic not because an apostle necessarily put pen to parchment for every one of them, But under the apostolic authority or imprimatur, each book was written and each book was commended to the church. So in the four gospels, Matthew and John are apostles. So they were part of the original 12 chosen by Jesus to bear witness to his ministry, death and resurrection from the baptism of our Lord through his resurrection and ascension. Mark and Luke are called evangelists. So are Matthew and John. But evangelists, the root word is evangel, which means gospel. And uh, so they're gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they're not apostles, Mark and Luke. However, they do write their testimony under the apostolic authority of two apostles. In the case of Luke, it is the apostle Paul. In the case of Mark, it is the apostle Peter. The connections to those apostles under whom um, each evangelist wrote is oftentimes a uh, undercovered story. For example, at Pastor Cypherline's 20th anniversary, we had a whole weekend of catechesis, which I did for their, their uh, Bible breakfast. Now that was really good because they had poached eggs and uh, they had uh, bacon and sausage and muffins of various kinds and fruit. Now that would be good. We could have a But that's only they only do it once a month. Um, anyway, I I I had pointed out the the um in uh the sermon which was also utilizing the same Sunday propers that we had here for the 11th Sunday after Trinity, the uh parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that the contents of Luke's gospel, uniquenesses in Luke's gospel, really correspond to the Apostle Paul who had been a Pharisee and who no doubt was assaulted by satanic attacks because of his former life as a self-righteous persecutor of the church. Paul, in his epistle to Timothy, calls himself the chief of sinners whom God chose to be an example. So in Luke's gospel, you have unique things, like at the foot of the cross, there is the word of Jesus spoken in prayer concerning those who crucified him from the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, to the Roman soldiers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You have only in Luke's gospel the repentant thief. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says today, you will be with me in paradise. Think of the impact that would have on Paul in terms of his comfort uh, as he continued his ministry. Only in Luke do we have Luke 15, the parables told to the Pharisees who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son the last son of which is basically a Pharisee and the open invitation the father come into the house and I submit to you that so as we've talked about in the past so many of these uh, occurrences in the Gospels and and the arguments that took place with the Pharisees and Jesus very likely Saul of Tarsus was a part of those. Okay now that's Luke and his connection to Paul under whose apostolic authority he wrote, there's also then Peter and his connection to Mark. And we know from church history that Peter, uh, excuse me, Mark accompanied Peter to Rome and was Peter's right hand man for a, for a good while. Uh, We also know that there was reconciliation between Mark and Paul after the dispute that took place prior to the second missionary journey of Paul. But some of the uniquenesses in Mark's gospel, here again, I would submit uh, correspond to, uh, to the apostle Peter and correspond to Peter's emphasis, for example, in his epistles on holy baptism, its power to deliver from the evil one and the joy of salvation that comes from that uh, under the cross of affliction. Now, I want to dispel any naughtiness that you may have ever been accustomed to by direct or have uh, ever encountered Not accustomed to, but encountered. If you'll turn in the in the Gospel of Mark to Mark chapter sixteen, it's the last chapter. Chapter sixteen. So the it's the very last sheet in your booklet. Verses 1 through 8 are the classic Mark account of the resurrection. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Notice the specific and only apostle referenced in that resurrection testimony is Peter. The angel says, go and tell Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. Why? Why? Because Peter had denied Jesus three times. He went out of the courtyard of the high priest weeping bitter tears of contrition. So what is the... What are we to learn from this message of the angel? Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you. This gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins is for Peter. Peter especially needs to know that. And so the evangelist Mark in his testimony becomes not only someone who is writing under the authority of Peter, but someone whose very ministry is for Peter. Okay? And so it's not as if it's a one way street, you know what I mean? Like, Peter's the apostle, he's the one that ministers. Well, it's true. But Mark is a minister, and he's ministering, in this case, to Peter himself in the testimony in the gospel of Mark. While you're on that particular um, While you're on that particular section, uh, turn just a page earlier to this, the end of chapter uh, 14, verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, Hey, this this is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, the word of Jesus, he wept. So you can see that connection then to the resurrection account. Now I want to take you back to chapter 16, however, because you'll see this in Bibles and you'll see this in um, in commentaries sometimes. If you look at the footnotes at the bottom of the last page, footnote C says, Mark 16, 9, verses 9 through 20, which would be the end of the gospel, are bracketed in NU. I'll explain what NU is in a moment as not in the original text. They are lacking in, now Codex Sinaiticus is the name of an ancient Greek manuscript, and Codex Vaticanus, which which is also an ancient Greek manuscript. Although, Nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. So what does this mean? Some want to say, since Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus did not contain verses 9 through 20, they should be removed from the Gospel of Mark as not being authentic to which I, and many others, say, rubbish. Remember, there were thousands of manuscripts written that are copies of the biblical texts. The New Testament, for example, has more manuscripts written, ten times over, than the best ancient manuscripts of other documents. The New Testament has copies galore. So most of them have it. Now those two are quite early and they don't have those verses. In 1999, there was published a book called Lutheran Catechesis. In 2006, there was a second edition. There are things in 2006 edition that are not in 1999 edition. But I can personally guarantee the same author wrote both. Okay. One of the characteristics of Mark's gospel is its brevity. Matthew's Gospel that we just were through, 28 chapters, Mark's 16. And I know the feeling, like for example, in Lutheran Catechesis first edition, there were things I wanted to include, but I didn't have, I didn't have the time. People wanted it, they were clamoring for it. We were building the building at the time, and uh, so Deacon had to get printing on it because we did it all in-house, and uh, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down on the day he was printing the 1909 edition, and water started coming in all over the place. It was quite the, quite the scene as we were called back with straight-line winds had knocked over the new walls. And they had to be, it delayed construction because <laughs> we had to rebuild what was knocked down. But then uh, as LSB came out, there was opportunity and more time to do a second edition Then a second edition was done, both of the catechumen and the catechist editions. So in the New Testament, um, the Gospel of Mark is an example of a gospel that really... Uh, is brief, in form, to go out to all of the um, churches that the Apostle Peter was ministering to. Notice how unsatisfying it would be if the gospel ended with verse 8. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Rather, rather unsatisfying. Also, the formation of the New Testament and the eyewitness testimony. Luke, when we study Luke, he will make it plain that many have taken in a hand to set forth an account of those things which are most surely believed among us. And Luke is talking about the other Gospels that were written, that were testimonies to Jesus. And so, in what follows in Mark's Gospel, which I think is a very early gospel, I think Matthew is still first and then Mark is right on its heels, it takes into account um, the fact that more gospels had been written. And so there's a lot of summary stuff in verses 9 through 20, including some very significant verses which are in the catechism and the Lutheran confessions. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, He, Jesus, appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Now, we learn that connection from John's gospel, most especially. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. Here again. That corroborates John's gospel, where Mary Magdalene appeared to the disciples in the upper room, Peter and John then ran to the tomb. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Which again is a corroboration of what the other gospel writers say. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. Here... We have a reference to Luke's account of the Emmaus disciples walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He appeared, as it were, to them in another form. Yeah. Polly.
1: Okay. And I thought
0: that I heard you say that Peter was probably one of them. He may have been. Why? 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 I'd like to ask you. <laughs> well, because of Luke's gospel, chapter 24, it says that he appeared to Simon. When did this take place? So, uh, and that's, it, it appears as if he appeared to Simon, Simon Peter, before he appeared in the upper room um, on Easter night. Okay. But I, I, I can't make that conclusion dogmatically. Mm-hmm. But there is the reference to this, he appeared to Simon. So, so Cleopas and Simon, Peter, may have been the two. Alright, so they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Now what's interesting here in 9 through 20 is that Mark highlights the lack of faith. This testimony, they didn't believe, the end of verse 11. Uh, He appeared to them, they went to the disciples, they didn't believe them either. Then 14, later he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table. That's in the upper room, that's John 20, also the end of Luke. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And that rebuking we know to be Jesus' words, peace be with you. And then verse 15. Now notice this famous passage. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs, which are reference to miracles, will follow those who believe. In my name, in the name of Jesus, they will cast out demons. You can think of the baptismal liturgy. They will speak with new tongues, new, a reference to the gospel, and in myriads of languages, but also the profoundly new message of forgiveness by grace. So new tongues. Think about Pentecost, but you think of the gospel of forgiveness going out, the New Testament in his blood to all nations. They will take up serpents. You think about the Garden of Eden and how the devil entered into a serpent. But they're not not harmed. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And all of those signs and miracles we saw in the apostolic age if we read through the Acts of the Apostles. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, a phrase that appears in the Apostles' Creed. You know, It sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. <laughs> And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So what you have in this conclusion, it's kind of like the epilogue to Mark's gospel, written by Mark, perhaps not at the same time that the first edition was written. You have there um, highlights of Matthew, Luke, and John, as well as the Acts of the Apostles where the preaching of the gospel was accompanied by the signs that are spoken of here. You think about Paul on the island of Malta. You remember a viper latched onto his hand as he was picking up these damp sticks to make a fire, and he shakes it off into the fire, and they say, oh, he's a criminal. The gods are coming to punish him, but he's unharmed. And um, the scandal among the Jews of, this is my blood, this cup is my blood, that was thought to be deadly poison if you drank blood among the Jews. So it was a radical thing when Jesus not only says, this is my body, but when he says, this is my blood, rather than being poison that kills, it's the medicine of immortality that gives life. So... If you see, don't be scandalized by the idea that is sometimes presented that these verses are not a part of Mark's gospel. The church for 2,000 years has said, axios, it is worthy, it is a part of Mark's gospel. Okay? The, um, the, the last thing I want to highlight uh, before taking a look at some baptismal, some other baptismal references is um, in Mark chapter 14. It would be prior to Peter's denial. So at the top of the page, we should have had page numbers, sorry about that. Betrayal and arrest in Gethsemane. One of the techniques of... It's not just ancient writers, but others, too. It's like some of you are probably fans of Alfred Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. And Alfred Hitchcock films um, often had something in them that identified them as a Hitchcock film. I mean, there's probably many things, but does anybody know what it was? Polly. Alfred Hitchcock. He would appear. You know? A uh, little cameo thing. And often it was just in the background, like in the I Confess, set in Quebec, Canada. Um, he walks across the screen way up on a, <laughs> in the city street above. Well, ancient writers often have a, signat- a unique signature in the writing that identifies them. The most famous in the New Testament is the Apostle John. How does he identify himself in his gospel? The disciple whom Jesus loved, loved. right. Which is not an arrogant statement, but rather a statement intended to be of comfort to him and to his readers. Um, Most exegetical commentators believe that Mark's signature, and there's probably a couple of places, but is especially noted in this chapter 14. Verse 43, Immediately while Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss... He is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as a robber, against a robber, with swords and clubs to take me. I was daily with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him." Now verse 51 and 52 are only found here in this gospel. A certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So, most commentators take that reference to the young man with the linen cloth who fled naked as Mark's, signature in this gospel. And I'm going to tie it in with some other things to amplify that in a moment. Savannah.
1: What do you mean by let away safely? What does he mean
0: by that? Well, they don't harm him. Judas, as part of the thing, Judas betrayed Jesus, but I don't think he fully grasped that they, they intended to kill him, to crucify him. All right. So a young man. Now if you go to Mark chapter ten. Now Mark's gospel, the the title, Jesus Counsels the Young Rich Young Ruler. There's no reference to him being a ruler in Mark's gospel. Uh, These subtitles throughout are subtitles that editors put in. There is is in Luke's gospel a, a reference that perhaps he had some degree of princely status. But look at verse 17 as... Jesus was going out on the road. One came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now let me reread that section. One thing you lack, strip yourself naked take up your cross and follow me. The call to repentance here for this young man is to let go of everything that he might otherwise depend upon. Now in what follows, Jesus, verse 23, looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again, and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So if a camel went through the eye of a needle, what would that do? It would strip the camel of his hump. Okay? They were greatly astonished, who then can be saved? But Jesus, looking at them, said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Okay, so uh, this detail about the rich young man in Mark's gospel, coupled with the young man who runs away naked, then needs to be also uh, checked out in in chapter 16. Because it's the same vocabulary used in the resurrection account, verse 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. All right. So, this Visage is identified not with the word angelos, but with the word man. How many angels were present at the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead? Maybe all of them. All of them. It doesn't mean we necessarily see all of them. Who is this? Well, it's an angel. But Mark describes the angel as a man for a number of reasons. Angels took on anthropomorphic form. You know, they appeared so often like men. And that there's only one in Mark's gospel. Trace this young man through. The young man who trusted in his own wealth, his accomplishments, his works, that he had kept the law. This young man, who couldn't let go of it, is stripped of everything. And now there's a young man clothed in white at the resurrection. Is it Mark? No, it's not Mark, but he personifies Mark. Or more importantly, he personifies Jesus. Because the angels, that the angels are vested with white robes, glistening white, is a vestiture that reflects the glory of the Son of God whose message, angel means message, they proclaim. Angels are messengers. In the Revelation according to St. John, to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia is not talking about uh, of a a being with wings, but the pastor there who is the angel, the messenger for the church of Philadelphia. Okay, So the seven churches of Asia that John wrote his apocalyptic writing to, the pastors in those are identified as angels. So whether it's an angel wearing vestments or... A minister of the gospel-wearing vestments, those vestments reflect the glory of Christ, of his righteousness, the glory of Jesus, whose message they proclaim. They also indicate when you're stripped, as they were in the ancient world for baptism, they would go into the water naked, and then they would come out of the water and be clothed in a white linen. Okay? So, the angel in Mark's gospel signifies how Mark, who had been a fraidy cat and self-righteous, we know he was a fraidy cat because after the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas was Mark's cousin, they leave the island of Cyprus, they go to Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and Mark says, I can't go on, and he goes back to Jerusalem, which is why Paul didn't want to take him anymore. I don't want this guy being with us and then he gets scared and he runs away. But that man, lack of courage, self-righteous, fearful, is stripped of all self-reliance. And then what happens in our, when we're called to faith and in our baptism, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Okay. Now these are subtle things, um, but ancient texts, ancient writers do these kinds of things to highlight significant points so that we also look at the message of the scriptures much more deeply, okay? And Mark's gospel is unique from Matthew's and Luke's. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. If you look at the beginning of Mark's gospel, there is no nativity. Matthew's gospel starts with the genealogy of Jesus, calling him son of David, son of Abraham. Luke's gospel in chapter 3 has the genealogy calling him son of God. Matthew's gospel has the nativity with The dream that Joseph has about what is he going to do with this pregnant wife, he knows he's not the father. Don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Luke's gospel has the whole account with Gabriel coming to Zechariah, serving as priest. Zechariah and Elizabeth are the parents of John the Baptist. And then the Annunciation, Gabriel to Mary, where the conception of Jesus takes place nine months beforehand then her visitation of Elizabeth, Mary's Magnificat, the great uh, glory and excelsis that the company of heaven sings at the birth of Jesus, the presentation in the temple, 40 days, Simeon's song, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. None of that is in Mark's gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the Prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Notice the gospel of Mark then begins with the voice. Crying in the wilderness. Fast forward to what we just looked at, Mark 16. The young man is the voice proclaiming then, the absolution or the justification that comes by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So you've got the voice calling to repentance at the beginning and the voice of the messenger at the end, the young man clothed in white. See, wonderful framing of the Gospel of Mark in this way. This indicates a number of other themes here, not the least of which is that there is an emphasis on preaching in Mark's gospel, but not the long discourses that you have in Matthew's gospel. But the kind of preaching and proclamation which is—it's punctilier, you know—it—it's uh, kind of abrupt. Be healed, you know. Uh, Begone, Satan! This, this, and so. The proclamation of the gospel is it has a like a Genesis creative account. Let there be, and there was. You know? So you'll see that in uh, Mark's gospel as well. All right. then finally, uh, in this first chapter, notice what it says, John, this is verse four, I'll continue where I was. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So notice how here baptism begins the Gospel of Mark and in the proper long-ending, baptism ends the Gospel of Mark. We saw that in Matthew, didn't we? That after the prologue material about the nativity, Jesus' ministry begins with the baptism that John administered, which Jesus submitted himself to. The heaven was ripped open, the Father spoke, the Son was in the water, the Spirit descended. Then at the end of Matthew, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Mark's gospel begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. And look at the lovely summary of it. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the baptism that John administered is in the long stream of and continuity of Christian baptism in the name of the triune God. Notice the benefit, forgiveness of sins. So they came confessing their sins. John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That was the purpose of it. And then they came, confessing their sins, to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You go to the end. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Whoever does not believe, again, the object of faith is Jesus, whenever we're baptized, you know. Whoever does not believe in Jesus will be condemned. So that frames the gospel very nicely. And then you also have, if you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to the first epistle of Peter. Because one of the things that I've tried to highlight with you over the months, if not years, is that epistles open up and further catechize us in the meaning of the events in the gospel and of Jesus' preaching in the gospels. And that of John the Baptist, too, for that matter. So Peter, associated with the evangelist St. Mark, we just highlighted some baptismal themes there. And if if we went back to, you know, chapter 1, he was clothed with camel's hair and so forth, and uh, this preaching of repentance is the exposing of the futility of man's efforts to save himself. So I want you to hear Peter beginning at verse 3, because verses 1 through 2 are his introduction to his first epistle. This is, when we were going through the the St. Peter option, a baptismal doxology. So you've got praise to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice how he speaks of baptism here, and we can hear the testimony of Mark In these words, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So immediately coming from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Blessed be the God. And I'm reading Mark's while you're looking at this. See, I'm reading Marks while you're looking at this. Okay, bless back to Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, resurrection, huge theme, in baptism, huge theme. Actually, in Mark's gospel, there's a lot of occasions of raising the dead. And I'll draw attention to those. It's not mere physical health, but the death of unbelief, the corruption spiritually, and the new life and the resurrection of faith, spiritual life. So, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So you think of the rich young man who is called to let go of all things that he might have treasure in heaven, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this salvation you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And, For Peter and Mark, they had their trials, not merely how they were attacked from outside, but the trials of their own personal struggles. You know, Mark's timidity, his weakness. Peter, his boast and bravado that turned out to be not so strong after all. Mark and Peter are well-suited to be paired together, each supporting one another in the gospel that they so desperately needed to be faithful. Okay, so if for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, Mark learned that. Sell everything you have. Let go of all of it for the greater treasure, Though tested by fire, this faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or wh- what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand, before Jesus' uh, suffering and death, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. Now, if you take that back, remember what it said. It marks gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. So Peter testifies to that. And then while you are in Peter's epistle go on to uh, chapter 1 verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth which is to to, to obey is to believe the gospel, Through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. uh, There's a reference to baptism. Not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Namely, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Another strong theme in Mark's Gospel. Because... Now, John the Baptist's preaching testified to this, what is revealed in verses 24 and 25, as does the entire gospel of Mark and then in in Peter's testimony. All flesh is grass, and this is from Isaiah 40, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Remember, the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, spoke of that, chapter 1 of Mark's gospel. And then finally, on baptism, in 1 Peter 3, chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, this is the descent into hell, who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water." Remember, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. There is also an an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. Skip the parentheses. Baptism saves through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Remember, we looked at Mark 16. He is ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. So, what I'm trying to show you here is Peter's use of language and theology from Mark's gospel that he then amplifies here. Okay. I told you to skip over the parentheses. I'll come back to that now. Baptism is not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Um, baptism forgives sin, but the filth of the flesh, which is the corruption of sin, will remain until the resurrection of the body. It's not talking about physical dirt of the body, but the removal of the filth of the flesh, the removal of sin. So baptism forgives sin in the sure and certain promise of the resurrection where there will be the removal of the filth of the flesh from corruption to incorruption. All right, so I'll, I'll, I'll come back from time to time to... Peter's epistles, not just first but also second, as we go through the study of Mark. We will begin uh, next week with chapter 1, verse 1, and walk through it. I'll also give you kind of an outline of a book. But I wanted to talk to you about authorship. I wanted to talk to you about the relationship, at least the beginning, between Peter and Mark, the evangelist, And I wanted to talk to you about the long ending of Mark, which uh, is a wonderful summation of New Testament theology and second article, death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand. All right. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.